what happens after a tragedy of this magnitude? How does a country respond? How do you go back to normal? People didn't just grieve after the Stardust fire. They grieved for months, for years. Lives were irreparably changed. No one in the community was left unaffected. But the world was about to move on. Petrol strikes were about to cripple the country and hunger strikes put Northern Ireland on the global stage. Just two weeks after the Stardust fire, Republican prisoner Bobby Sands went on hunger strike in the Mays prison. After losing her friend Susie in the Stardust, Yvonne Graham moved back to Derry, to the Troubles. Everybody up here at the Stardust thought we were dead. So they did. They were all shocked that we were still living because they were all told that we had died in the fire. When we come back up then, as I say, the whole thing was taken away from the Stardust because of the Troubles. So nobody ever ever bothered about it. Do you see that because of the troubles and because of the hunger strike and all that there and because the hunger strikers started dying the same year, the whole emphasis was taken off the Stardust. You know, it was never really mentioned because of all the troubles. The rest of the world was moving on, but it wasn't that simple for the families of victims and survivors. They were about to face months of investigations into the fire decades fighting for justice. But in the short term, for people like Linda Bishop, Susan Darling and Lorraine McDonnell, they just had to try to get on with their lives. It's still there. I I can remember it like it was yesterday. I can remember everything like it was yesterday. There's very few details that I don't remember. But yeah, it was just... And then the police start knocking at the door for us to go and give interviews. Sure, I remember we were working in a sewing factory down there, pound on Hampson's in the factory. And the boss came up to us, do you remember? Yeah, yeah. And the union reps came up to the house. We didn't go to work on the Monday. We just couldn't face it. And of course, they were after telling him, oh, and actually one of the girls that walked was Marie Kendi. She, she was died. killed. And he came up to see us to see how we were and all that. And he was saying, look, don't be worrying about work. Forget about work for the week. You know, you'll get paid and don't be worried about your money and all that and everything, you know. Like, people were great. People were great, you know, that way. But, uh, yeah, it was just so many people were affected around here with it, you know, that everybody knows somebody. You're in shock. You're numb. I'm quite honest, you're numb. Because you go home and, like, I could come, you'd come home, I'd come home from work and say, you're missing that chair. That hard coming home from work. And did your mags and everything else that you'd have. Um, you don't go back to do normal things, you go back to work. But you're going through the motions. I think you just keep going through the motions. Even if you had some time to take in what had happened, some time to decompress after the intensity of those few weeks, the approach we have today to helping people get back on their feet just didn't exist. And that wasn't just for the family and friends of those who were injured or who had died. For both Garda Lawrence Duffy and firefighter Dave Fitzgerald, they would have been back to work quickly. Our counselling the next day was to go to the Stardust to mind the place. We were there for a week. There was no such thing as counselling. We got counselling out of the bottom of a glass. That's how most of us got our counselling. We just had to get on with it. I would have shed a few tears the next day thinking, did I do right? I never doubted I did right, but carrying the dead bodies out was rough. 
I felt sorry for the younger fellas. I'd never seen anything like that. I cut down a few fellas in my time, but this was dreadful. The bodies, you just couldn't identify them. Nothing has ever impacted me like the stardust. Now you're back on duty, yeah. Yeah, you had to. If you didn't, you might never come back, you know, that kind of way. Now you were back in. I can remember that morning, I'd say it was probably Dublin's busiest time for where the firefighters used to go and the cops used to go for drinks. Each Every every early morning house was just full from 10 o'clock on with firemen and, and cops just in there. Just That's that's all we knew, was just go and have a few beers and talk it out and talk to the senior men. And It was great listening to them and they were great. They were great, great encouragement to, for you, you know, that we'd done our best and, you know, lots of people were saved um, and lots of people died, you know. But no, you got through it. Not everyone did. The stardust left many with lasting mental scars. That goes without saying. But in the immediate aftermath, it may not have taken a lot to avoid this for some people. Dr. Yolanda Ferguson, a consultant psychiatrist based in Dublin, says that our understanding of how to deal with such tragedies has changed dramatically. In two ways, I suppose our understanding of the effect of trauma on people has changed a lot. And also how we respond to major disasters has uh, been transformed. I think what's remarkable after, after disasters, either whether they be natural disasters or man-made, is how most people actually come out okay. Um, so the WHO from uh, their survey would say about 70 to 75 percent of people while they go through a period of emotional distress and understandable shock they actually process it and they move on and they don't need any additional help so the minority of people will need help after a after a disaster Uh, so what is useful in the first instance and this is part of the, the national disaster plan is you do what's called psychological first aid um and that's really about This is in the immediate aftermath. This is really about things like connecting people, uh, making sure that they feel safe, making sure that their basic needs are met, you know, that they're warm, that they're fed, they have something to drink, that they're able to communicate, they are able to contact their families, um, that they are in a safe environment uh, because, you know, they're traumatized and they feel really unsafe, and that they are signposted to more uh, additional supports should they need it. Uh, but very much that kind of basic minding uh, in the initial stages is what's needed. Some of the people affected didn't get this. They were left to deal with the mental trauma themselves. It stuck with them. Others received counselling sessions in the following years. But until then, they'd be constantly reminded of it. The Tribunal of Inquiry that was promised by Charles Hockey got underway within weeks of the fire. Hohi promised swift justice, but the Stardust and then the Republican hunger strikes were a political disaster for him. From riding high in the polls beforehand, he called a general election in the summer of 1981, much later than he had originally planned. Hohi then found himself booted out of power and replaced by Gareth Fitzgerald's Fine Gael government. Hohi was gone, but the tribunal would carry on regardless. Before it started, the early commentary in newspapers had pointed to arson. And, and the truth is, if you look at the newspapers, I mean, that's what they were saying. They were going with that story. Uh, as you know, when you speak to the relatives, you know, it was the look of God that somebody was there, other people weren't there. And it is, um, 
it's like all big stories um, at the time. It was so enormous. I think everybody was jumping to every conclusion at, at the outset. And uh, I suppose, in a way, that's what the problem is, even today. In the week after the fire, politicians debated how much power the tribunal would have. It was decided it would look at the causes of the fire, what contributed to the deaths of so many, as well as examining legislation, statutory regulations and bylaws around fire safety. The person appointed by Hohi to take charge of the tribunal was Ronan Keane. Then a High Court judge, he went on to become Chief Justice of the Irish Supreme Court. Two years before the Stardust Fire in 1979, Keane had been appointed to the High Court and at the time was the youngest judge there. Journalist Ruan McCormick wrote that Keane was a thinker, a prolific author of legal books, essays and reviews. He was described as being the sort of person who didn't mind having to sit on his own in his chambers all day, reading through boxes of case files. Years later, a very different connection between Hohi and Keane was revealed on national television. Ronan Keane's wife Terry told The Late Late Show in 1999 that she'd had a decades-long affair with Hohi. The tribunal sat at the Law Society building near Smithfield in Dublin City and heard its first witness seven weeks after the Stardust fire on the 6th of April. Families packed into the courtroom day after day to hear the evidence, in the belief that the tribunal would uncover how and why their children died. It sat for a total of 122 days, finishing just before the end of November that year. The judge's report was finally published the following year, in June 1982. The report itself stretches to more than 600 pages and contains a huge amount of detail, ranging from the history of the Stardust complex, to safety inspection reports, to details of the fire itself. In putting together this podcast, we poured over this report, looking at the conclusions reached by the judge and how he got there. We're going to run through these now for you as a team. So I'm here now with two names you've heard from the credits of the podcast so far. We have our producer, Nikki Ryan, and executive producer, Christine Bowen. And what we've done here is we've taken the tribunal report, we've gone through all of it, all 600 pages of it, the three of us, and we split it up into what we think are the most important findings of the report. I mean, when you look at this report and you glance at any page of it, the level of detail is staggering, but it's also quite clearly written. Yeah, the judge obviously wrote this with the intention that people would actually read it. So it's not some kind of academic book which is meant to gather dust on a shelf somewhere. He wanted it to be read. He wanted it to be understood. So he's thorough and he gets into detail about almost every single issue that he looks at in it. And so I suppose if we're going to turn to the most um, important aspects, we're going to have to be forcefully looking at fire safety in the building. And it's here that the it's the owners of the Stardust itself, it's Dublin Corporation, the Fire Service and the Irish State all come in for some criticism from Justice Keane. Yeah, those are the main elements that the tribunal looked at in terms of fire safety. And he does, of course, focus on the fact that a door that was meant to be an emergency exit was locked. And throughout the evening, some of the other five exits were locked. And that's a massive focal point of the investigation. But that wasn't the main single contributing factor in terms of the number of people who died, according to the judge. We spoke in episode three about this policy that doors were routinely locked at the Stardust and that they were being locked to make sure that some people didn't sneak in. 
This policy was in place on the night of the fire and there was one door that was locked with a chain and padlock and it had been since 10pm on the Friday night. So that was still locked when the fire broke out. Now, some but not all of the other exits had a chain and padlock draped around the door mechanism. So it looked like they were locked and that held up some people who were trying to escape. I think we should point out at this stage though that this wasn't necessarily an unusual practice. It wasn't just at the stardust that doors were locked like this when people were on the premises back then. Like it wasn't even against the law at the time. And there's actually one line of inquiry that the guards did follow. They found out that four young men had actually tried to get into the stardust that night by climbing onto the roof. So they tried to force open a door. They couldn't and then they left. But the tribunal found that this all happened before midnight and Gardy were satisfied that they actually never came back. The judge then concluded that, I quote, there were also frequent attempts by people to get in without paying. More generally though in this report, there's a range of issues that we'd consider to be very simple fire safety issues now, which were flagged by Judge Keane. Staff weren't sure where all the fire extinguishers were. There was no procedure of what to do if anything like a major fire happened, no evacuation plan. And staff weren't trained in terms of what to do if this did actually happen. I mean, of course, Keane found that the lights failing was a massive part of the panic that took hold in the Stardust. People who we spoke to have really emphasised that. Yeah, Judge Keane actually has a really strong part about that in the report. He says that if there had been an efficient evacuation, so if staff had been able to evacuate the people from the Stardust on the night, the injury sustained would almost certainly have been reduced. And if we take a step back then from everything that happened on the night itself, we also know that there were fire safety issues in regards to the building. So... Dublin Corporation played a role in this, such as its fire department being completely understaffed and the corporation never carried out a fire safety inspection at the Stardust. Never. Keane says on page 287, the fact that there was no inspection of this building by any member of the fire brigade, either in the fire prevention department or firefighting service, from the date it opened until the fire was one of the most disquieting facts to emerge at this inquiry. If we turn away from just the local council then, Judge Keane, he focuses on the Irish state as well. So it was the Department of Environment. It was criticised because it failed to introduce modern building codes. Yeah, the fact that the department failed to introduce these modern safety standards was described as wholly unacceptable. And it kind of speaks volumes that this area was regulated by something that was called the Fire Brigades Act 1940, which, as the name suggests, was 41 years old at the time of the fire. And it just didn't address the necessary modern standards. Keane writes on page 332 that continues Continuing neglect of fire safety systems in Ireland has now contributed to a disaster on an appalling scale that will cast a shadow across one Dublin community for years and perhaps generations to come. And, you know, he was right. We're still here four decades on, still talking about it. It was definitely one of the more far-reaching statements to come in the tribunal report. But I suppose if we're going to be talking about fire safety, we also have to talk about the people who ran the Stardust. And it's the Butterleys and some of the staff who worked at the Stardust that come in for some particular criticism in the tribunal report. Yeah, the judge was lacerating uh, about what Eamon Butterley told Gardaí when he spoke to them after the fire. There's one part of the report where the judge describes the behaviour of Eamon Butterley and some of the doormen as deplorable and indefensible because they failed to cooperate fully with investigating Gardaí. We know that on the Monday after the fire, one of the doormen told Gardaí that he had unlocked the emergency exits in the Stardust on the night of the fire so that he was the person who had done this. And he went on Today Tonight on RT1 television, which was the precursor to primetime. And he said the same thing that evening. But then three days later, he retracted this. He told Gardaí that it wasn't true. He said that he had been in grief and shock at the time because he had lost his girlfriend in the fire. So the tribunal says that the very next day, the head doorman told Gardaí that he had actually unlocked all of the fire exits. 
This is a man called Thomas Kennan, who was Eamon Butterley's uncle. So we can see that there's already confusion as to the state of the exits on the night. And in the tribunal report, Judge Keane says that some of the other doormen give what he what are described as misleading accounts about the locks and the exits. So as well as misleading accounts from some of the doormen, we also have misleading accounts from Eamon Butterley himself. In his original statement to Gardaí, he failed to mention what his knowledge was of the doors being locked at certain stages of the night. And this was a practice that he had himself enforced and ordered. That's on page 147 then. Keane says that the tribunal is satisfied that Mr. Brutley must have known that his failure to disclose what his full knowledge was as to the state of the exits, that could only have been described as seriously misleading. And he goes on, Brutley deliberately chose to lock the doors instead of stationing his doorman there. I mean, even going back to, you know, the building regulations, the Brutleys were singled out as well as being responsible for making sure that everything was in order in terms of fire safety. And this, I quote, they manifestly failed to do. And then in a theme that appears throughout this report, it says that there are a number of serious incidents where the owners fail to comply with the requirements of the bylaws in Dublin. So, for example, that they use timber partitions to close portions of the building which shouldn't have been used and exit doors being locked and chained and the means of escape in some places being obstructed. And there was no member of staff responsible for fire safety in the venue. I think if we're going to sum up the judge's conclusions when it comes to the Bortleys and all of this, I think there's actually one quote on page 278 that encapsulates this really well. So bear in mind, Patrick Butterley is the head of the family and business at the time, and he's now deceased, whereas Eamon is the son who ran the Stardust. The judge says, Mr. Patrick Butterley and Mr. Eamon Butterley must share the responsibility for these matters. Mr. Eamon Butterley, however, bears a special responsibility for the practice of keeping the emergency exits secured with chains and padlocks until midnight at the earliest on disco nights, a recklessly dangerous practice which regularly endangered the lives of over 1,000 people and, in the event, led to one exit being locked and chained on the night, and possibly contributing to avoidable deaths and injuries. So let's now look at what the judge said in terms of what caused the fire. Gardaí, of course, they had to do their own investigation, and they actually did a thorough investigation into whether the fire had been started deliberately. So Gardaí had scoured the remains of the building for anything that could point to its cause, say a broken wire, or for example, they also thoroughly examined an immersion heater that was in the building. But that wasn't the cause either. Nothing was ever found. So once the Gardaí had looked at all these hypotheses and couldn't establish definitively what had happened on the night, the tribunal was left with that ultimate responsibility. It examined several theories then. That the fire might have been started deliberately, through an electrical fault, a stray cigarette, or an accidental fire in the roof space. And so it's here I think that the judge comes to his most important conclusions. He says that the tribunal is satisfied that the evidence clearly points to the fire having originated in the West Alcove rather than the roof space. And here he makes another crucial finding. He says that the cause of the fire is not known and may never be known. He says that there's no evidence that was started accidentally and that there's no evidence that was started deliberately. So that's on page 242 of the report. But he goes on to say that in these circumstances, the tribunal has found it necessary to examine in detail all the possible hypotheses of an accidental or deliberate origin. And in his conclusion on the hypotheses then on the very next page, the judge writes that the tribunal has come to the conclusion that the more probable explanation of the fire is that it was caused deliberately. Yeah, this is the most important point from the tribunal, really. He's saying that he's looked at all the possible causes and that it was most likely arson. Now, this is a tribunal of inquiry, which is the highest form of inquiry in the Irish state. So his words carry a massive weight. And that's what he says. He says there's no evidence that the fire was started deliberately. 
But he says the tribunal has come to the conclusion that the more probable explanation is that it was caused deliberately. And he also suggests how it may have happened. He says that the most likely mechanism is that some of the seats in the alcove had been slashed with a knife and then someone had applied a lighted match or a cigarette lighter to the foam or else they possibly had some newspapers that they set a light on or under the seats. And this is, he says, what happened, what would likely caused the fire. And like, I mean, as we said, there's no word in this report without meaning for the judge to say that the probable cause of the fire was arson. Like, I mean, this would have huge repercussions that would last for decades. And these are still being felt today. In a tribunal, a judge works within the terms of reference set and looks at all of the available evidence to reach a conclusion. That's what Ronan Keane did here. He was tasked with reaching a conclusion about the cause of the fire, and his conclusion was that it was probable arson. In more modern times, Judge Peter Charlton had to make a judgment on fact and fiction when he was coming to his conclusions at the Disclosures Tribunal, which looked at allegations of a smear campaign against Garda whistleblower Morris McCabe. But regardless of the result of the tribunal, people were still living with the effects of the fire, both physical and mental. We always thought we were the lucky ones, and you didn't complain because, Jesus Christ, you're looking at the, the families and there were so many people dead and in hospital, badly burned. And so you just didn't complain and you weren't looking for anything from anybody. Do you know what I mean? We really weren't. But I do remember seeing a doctor on the TV, one of the news bulletins, like very soon afterwards. And he was standing there in his white coat outside Jervis Street Hospital and he was an older man. And I do remember him saying, look, it could be years absolutely years before we realise the extent of this. The legal effect of the probable arson verdict would last for many years. The Butterleys were heavily criticised in the tribunal, but crucially found not to be responsible for the fire. The Butterleys pursued a claim for malicious damage to the building against Dublin Corporation. After a lengthy case, the Butterleys were awarded £581,000 in July 1983 or around 1.5 million euro in today's money. Initially, the families received nothing from the state, no compensation. Even when it came to the funerals, they were paid for through the Dublin Lord Mayor's Charity Fund. There were further legal avenues open to sue for damages, but this will be a costly process. A committee representing the victims was formed, spearheaded by John Keegan, whose daughters Mary and Martina had died in the fire. His daughter, Antoinette, was the only one who'd made it out. I remember 1982 when the um, Cain Tribunal was over and my father heard on the news, probable arson. He just couldn't believe it, probable arson. And it meant that we were left in a high and dry situation and the owners was going to be compensated for their building, where like the families like that lost loved ones and then the injured were like disillusioned because of the outcome and were angry and couldn't accept it and have never accepted it. This sort of legal limbo persisted for a number of years as Dublin Corporation didn't want to admit liability and fought cases like it had fought the case brought by Butterley. Another factor was the cost. Nobody had the money to fight long court cases. The government of the day was being urged to do something to support the victims, their families and survivors many of whom were still learning to live with the injuries they received. In June 1985, members of the Stardust Victims Committee packed into the doll to watch from the public gallery as Charles Hockey, now on the opposition benches, made a case to intervene. 
Here's what the transcript reads. I am sure that the great majority of people would be surprised and indeed horrified to learn that, to date, not one penny of compensation has been paid to any of the relatives or the victim survivors of the Stardust Fire. Not alone have they not received compensation of any kind, but there is no immediate indication that compensation will be paid within the foreseeable future. Furthermore, many of these families are now being asked to pay a sum of £1,000 each on foot of costs. Most of us would have to accept that this is a total absurdity and it makes a mockery of our system of justice. This group of citizens, through no fault of their own, find themselves in the situation in which they are today. We cannot leave them there feeling bitter, disillusioned and, as they would say if you were talking to them, with a dreadful feeling that nobody cares about them, that the state does not care about them, that their own country has no interest in them or their fate. We cannot allow that to continue. I believe we owe it to ourselves in this Parliament and the legal system owes it to us as a community to take the situation aboard and deal with it. This issue wasn't going away and the Stardust families had public support. Marches and protests were held. It took a long time because of the various legal strands that had been at play. The tribunal, legal cases from the Butterleys, from the families themselves. But Taoiseach Gareth Fitzgerald and his Attorney General John Rogers got together to hatch a plan for how to proceed, unveiling it in September 1985. A government scheme would compensate victims and their families. They had four months to apply to a tribunal. These claims would be assessed and compensation granted if applicable. However, these payments would be ex gratia. It meant that they'd have to cease any court action they were taking over it and not bring further action. What they were given would also have to remain anonymous. It wasn't ideal by any means, but some felt forced into it. Well, because those people, right, have to be in, like, in a situation where there was no income coming in, it was working class, there was struggling going on, uh, families was, like, not working, parents was out of work right over the loss of a child, and bills was building up. People, I think, wanted to try and get something sorted. And what they gave us was like uh, waving a carrot at us, take it or leave it. That's the way it was put to us, right? If you don't accept it and you go to court, you could lose your home. Like, if you lose your case, you could lose your home. Like, families lost their loved ones, they lost their children. And this is what they were putting up to us, telling us, right, but you didn't take it to court, but this is what you're getting. Take it or leave it. So people had no option but to take it. Like, if you go to court, right, who are you going to prove starts the fire? Who's, who, because the judge said arson. So who do you go and what, what do you do? You can't do anything. The Compensation Tribunal was essentially the government trying to draw a line under this tragedy. The interview process for this wasn't a pleasant experience for many. When each person attended, they were asked to describe their experience of being there that night and some were asked to reveal their injuries. To these people, who were all still quite young, they were given the option of a few thousand pounds by doing it this way, or pursuing court cases. To them, it felt like a lot of money. A lot of money to just drop everything and move on. Well, I remember when we, when we were, like a good few months after Andy, we were talking about compensation, 
and we the policeman came up and he said, I want you to go down to St. David's School. Uh, there's a bar down there and I want you to go down there. Uh, they're talking about giving us compensation. And we said, for what? And he said, because you were there that night, there's solicitors down there. So we all went down and uh, we had to go to hospital for x-rays and all stuff like that. And then we were brought into this room one by one. And there was a, a big table and there was about 10 people all along the table like that. And you sat at the end of the table and they started asking you loads of questions. Uh, and how are you now? And, and we were crying and stuff like that. Like we were saying like, well, all our friends are dead. And yeah, yeah, but how are you now? You know, are you back to work? And we said, yeah, well, we had to go back to work because you have to earn a living. Yeah, yeah. And are you all right now? You're all right now, are you? And you're just looking at them like that, going, what the fuck are you talking about? And, uh, okay, right, so there'll be 5,000 for you now. You're all right with that, that's 5,000, right, next. And then you are sent out the door, right? And then she went in, and she came out, and I said, how much did you get? She, she five grand. I said, it's only fucking I. And we were like, 5,000, but, like, we thought that was loads of money at the it time. It was loads of money. It was loads of money, do you know what I mean? But, like, we were like... It was, and then was a shut up money kind of... And that's what, that's what I'm just everybody about to say. Told, everybody was told not to tell not anybody, to tell anybody, else, anybody what else what you got. You don't tell, now don't tell anybody what you got when you go out there and all that. But like, we got five grand and some people that our kids were killed got 8,000 for a child that was dead. So like, you were kind of saying to yourself then, Jesus Christ, like, I'm not getting five grand, what am I going to fucking do with that? Do you know what I mean? But uh, no counselling. No, like, nothing, nothing after. Not like, how are you? No, absolutely not. I was going in to claim for my leather coat. My mum said to me, yeah, you're entitled to claim for your leather coat. And I was like, I had um, my own GP. My mother kept saying she's not right. She's not right since that. You know, I was always, like I say, the messer, the joker, the one not going to school, the one not doing my homework. I was always messing and joking. My mother maintained that my personality completely changed. So, of course, we went into this tribunal thing and I was looking for a saying, well, I'm not really here because... <laughs> I lost my leather coat. Well, I had, I was given uh, some money, and my mother was. But then, um, I wouldn't, it's, it was, it was neither here nor there. Do you know what I mean? It just, at the end of the day, I'm really supposed to disaccept her, and that's it. Yeah. You know, and walk away. We're just working class people. You know? For someone in Errol Buckley's position, Taking the money was the only real option. It did help me, um, but when I, when I was getting, everything was just, just sort of, you know, with the, they had to, but they had to even the banks involved, I think, because they said, I think that you had the AIB there, you know, like, and put your money in there. And I mean, we had the clue about, what, about putting the money anywhere around, you know what I mean? And he was saying, if you don't take this now, this will go going for another five or six years. And he was saying, if you're not taking out this, how long it's going to take? When you're the young for that age, or you just to give it a, a price there. You know, if you don't take it, it's another five years. He said, you're a young man, you know what I mean? And when you're 18, you see the few above that, you're going to take it, of course. But it wasn't about money or that, you know what I mean? Really, at the end of the day. Not, not was going to bring waiver the back, you know? The Compensation Tribunal would pay out a total of £10 million to more than 800 applicants. In today's money, that'd be almost 20 million euro. But there's a line that really sticks out from the subsequent report of this tribunal. It's talking about John Keegan, who'd lost two daughters, and how it made no award in his favour 
despite the submissions of nervous shock and mental trauma he'd given. Citing case law from the UK on mental trauma, the tribunal said. The Keegan case illustrates one of the problems which confronted the tribunal, even in attempting to apply the liberal approach towards mental trauma, contained in Lord Wilberforce's judgment in the case of McLaughlin versus O'Brien. Even following that judgment, one could not award compensation for mere grief, however intense. Mere grief. It goes on. The tribunal, in applying Lord Wilberforce's judgment, took the view that it could compensate for illness resulting from mental trauma, but that it could not compensate for grief. John Keegan appealed this to the Supreme Court. He lost the case, but he never found out that he'd lost it. He died just before Christmas 1986 of bowel cancer. It's fair to say the government's hands were tied with the arson finding. This route avoided lengthy litigation for the victims and families that may not have been successful. But there's also a degree of box ticking here. The first tribunal happened, and now the government had given the victims compensation on the condition they dropped their court cases. It was a way of tying it up, closing the chapter. After all this, what more could the government do? Only, without evidence, that tribunal had ruled it was probably arson. No arsonist was ever apprehended. The Stardust families had tried to take on the establishment and get answers and justice for their loved ones. So far, they'd failed. It's the area of Dublin we were from, working class. Like My father has often said, if this happened in Donnybrook instead of Bonnybrook, because this area is classed as Bonnybrook, he said this wouldn't have been going on this length of time. And like my father passed away in 1986, uh, shortly after the Stardust, he died of cancer, never smoked a cigarette in his life. But it was literally stress that killed him. And like he was determined, he was never going to let it go. It would take literal decades before they'd make any progress. John Keegan would never get closure for his daughters. The McDermott's wouldn't get it for their three children. Not in the 80s, not in the 90s, not in the 2000s. Justice means different things to different people. When it comes to the Stardust, the term justice doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. But when Stardust families say justice though, it just comes down to the truth. They feel they haven't gotten it yet. They want what they see as a proper and thorough investigation into what happened to their children. They want to find out how they died. And to date, they feel they've not had that. Not yet. Why is it taking so long? Here's what journalist Eamon Dunphy thinks. It is the worst scandal that remains unresolved. I mean, there are things like the Kerry Babies scandal. The abuse of people by the state continues. The Hepatitis C scandal. Now we have cervical check and there is um, abuse of victims there, denial of responsibility and culpability. And the Stardust is emblematic, really, of how ruthless and cruel the Irish state is and how it remains as ruthless and cruel as it's always been. The refusal to give justice to these people and that community is an enduring scandal. It's tragic for those people and it's a sign 
of the endemic sickness in Irish society. It would not, could not have happened, in my view, in any other European country. It's so, so hard to watch those people and to reflect on the enduring cruelty, the savage nature of the Irish establishment. It's savage, it's brutal. It hasn't changed at all, not at all, since they were burying babies in mass graves. But the rhetoric has changed. The caring uh, speak has changed, but they still don't give a fuck. Next time on Stardust. And, and people like forget about that, and governments don't hear that part of it, like what happened, what happened in the aftermath of it. What happened to the people's lives after? Oh, forget, was there 100 people there that night? For me, I think that's where Dara Mackin was such a sea change because it was his idea that don't be calling for new inquiries because inquiries are always constrained by the terms of reference. What you need to do, first of all, is establish the facts of what happened that night and that's where the inquest comes in. I often wonder, like, what they'd be like now, you know? Yeah, it's sad, yeah. If, if they'd kids and married or... Where would they be living? And like how different our lives would have been. Thank you for listening to episode five of Stardust. I'm Sean Murray and this podcast is produced by Nikki Ryan with executive producer Christine Bowen. We're going to share a link to the Tribunal report itself on our Twitter page at StardustPod so you can take a look at the findings for yourself. It contains a massive amount of detail but is quite accessible and contains many images of the club itself. If you've been following the podcast, please leave a review or share it with a friend. We'll be back next week with the sixth and final episode.